Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And welcome back to Mads World. I'm your host, Mads, and I hope you've been enjoying the show so far. If you have, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review as it's the simplest way to help out the show. Or find me on socials and tell your friends about it. This week, I'm joined by award-winning comedian, podcaster, speaker, and journalist, Rosie Wilby. Rosie regularly appears on radio and TV, commentating on sexuality, dating, and love, and was dubbed the queen of breakups by BBC Radio 4 following the success of her podcast, The Breakup Monologues. She has extensively explored heartbreak in her podcast, in her hugely successful comedy shows, and in her first book, Is Monogamy Dead?, which was shortlisted for the Diva Literary Awards and longlisted for the Polari First Book Prize. She has written for publications including The Guardian, Sunday Times, and New Statesman, and has performed at major festivals including Glastonbury and Latitude. In 2011, Rosie Wilby was dumped by email. Obsessing about breakups ever since, she embarked on a personal quest to investigate understand and conquer the psychology of heartbreak part memoir part investigation the breakup monologues takes on the big questions about our life-changing separations in the modern age of ghosting breadcrumbing and conscious uncoupling in rosie's trademark immersive investigative form the self-styled lesbian louis theroux puts her own relationship under the microscope in a sex lab and explores how a split parallels the effect of withdrawing from a drug why friendship breakups can feel like the worst endings of all how polyamory changes the conversation about commitment, how breakups can sometimes be empowering and lead to exciting new life journeys, and how ultimately they can even help us to stay together. In this episode, we discuss the joy of breakups and embracing life after a breakup, love affair friendships and friendship breakups, political lesbians and queer baiting, and much, much more. Hello, Rosie. Hi, Maddie. It's good to meet you. Lovely to meet you too. Thank you so much for making the time to come on. I know we've been trying to organise this for so long and it feels like forever ago that I read your book, but it was absolutely brilliant. So there was there was so many themes that came through in your book, such as the joy of breakups, questions about love, friendship and the challenges that come with being a lesbian woman. And I was just hoping you could take my listeners through what made you decide to write the book and just a little bit more about it before we to jump into some of those themes. Yes, well, thank you for that lovely introduction. I'm so pleased that you enjoyed the book. That's, I loved that's great it. to know. Yeah. <laughs> Yay. Um, 
Um, yeah, so I'm a comedian and I've been studying the psychology of love for many years for a trilogy of shows that I toured around the world. One of those became my first book, Is Monogamy Dead? And then a few years ago, I got dumped by email and I joked at the time that, <laughs> <laughs> that I felt better after correcting her spelling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is just, you know, a silly joke about my own pedantry more than anything, more than her yeah. spelling. Um, but of course, in reality, being dumped is this real shock and this really bewildering, discombobulating experience yeah. where you lose that, you know, imagined future that you had all planned out. So I found that something comforting to me was to sort of unpack the psychology of what is going on when we're heartbroken and I started doing that first of all in one of my live shows and then in a podcast called The Breakup Monologues where we have a live conversation in front of an audience uh, with fabulous guests, comedians, authors, sometimes scientists and academics who've studied the, the scientific or social scientific aspect of all this and that then uh, became my second book which I got published over a year ago and it's just come out in paperback as well so I'm really touched by the people like yourself who say they've enjoyed it got something from it related to it found that maybe they've had some similar experiences or even heard um, you know about relationships from a different perspective that they don't always think about. Yeah, and I loved what you said about at the start about the email and how you turned it into something funny because there's a part in the book where you speak about how tragedy plus time equals comedy and I think that is so true. We, we you know, a lot of my anecdotes on this podcast are things that felt horrible at the time <laughs> but then, you know, we can laugh at them later. But if you can talk talk to us more about that because I just found that whole concept really fascinating. <laughs> Well, yeah, I do think that we have to sometimes have a sense of humour about the difficult things that we've got through and that we've survived. And, you know, the post-traumatic growth that comes after a breakup is really, really important in terms mm. of developing developing our sense of self and identity. And the subtitle of the book is actually The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak because mm. I found many, many people had gone on to exciting new adventures, new careers, new projects or new relationships with more compatible partners because they had found a better sense of themselves, their own boundaries, their own needs, their own desires and dreams. And I do think that breakups can be in a weird way celebrated as a sort of catalyst for positive change in our lives. Yeah. And so, yeah, I wanted to sort of find the humor and the laughter in our darker moments that can then sort of ultimately be be celebrated as we come out the other side and and have these perhaps new new starts these reawakenings these transformations well you say something as well in the book um breakups facilitate and necessitate transformation so it, it's interesting that you were saying about it being a catalyst for change and do you think that that change is always positive or do you think it can be negative as well well, it depends how you harness the situation. Um, it depends 
whether you allow yourself the time for growth. Some people are serial monogamists and don't really allow themselves any time in in between relationships at all because they are very scared of being alone. And I can understand that because all the narratives we hear are about how you should be in a relationship and that's what is normal and that's what's expected and that's what shows you're a, you know, a lovable human being and successful at relationships. Um, but I do think our time spent single are really, really precious and really valuable and really important. And that's when I've done some of my best work and actually, you know, had the time to write a book or start a new project or write a comedy show. And, you know, in relationships, we've got a lot of work to do sort of maintaining and navigating and tending to the relationship. So we do have less time and headspace available, even though, yes, we have other relationships, we have friendships. Um, So I do kind of celebrate those times when we are forced to reflect and think about who we are. And I think if you're any kind of evolved human being and, you know, very broadly speaking, I think women are, you know, more naturally equipped to do this, to to sort of reflect and change in positive ways and take on the sort of critical feedback from how maybe they behaved in in the relationship and how there were things that, you know, were were challenging to another person or difficult. Um, And I think we we can change. But there, there is evidence in various studies that men do find it harder longer term to recover from a breakup. So perhaps they you know, because of this sort of sense of masculinity and how you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to be tough, they perhaps find it harder, um, you know, in, in our in our patriarchal kind of world where men are supposed to be a certain way. Maybe they find it harder to be vulnerable and, and admit they might need to go and see a therapist or they might mm. need to do something very proactively in order to recover from heartbreak and recover from a breakup. So you know, I mean, that's obviously very, very broad. And we do see people of all uh, genders sort of behaving in, in different ways. We can behave in very strange ways when we're in, in yeah. love and falling out of love. But yeah, there, there certainly is, there are studies that show women sort of recovering better longer term after actually initially reporting more physical and emotional distress and pain. That's so interesting. And that and that sort of leads into something else that I wanted to chat to you about. There's a quote in the book by Adele Haynall. I think I'm saying this right. And it's maybe it's not a failure when a love story ends. Maybe it lives within you and changes you forever. And I, I think that's so awesome because every relationship that you have, and this isn't even just romantic relationships. It might be friendships or relationships with your family. And you can kind of look back on them, even if they've ended in a positive way eventually, because it's made you who you are and it's taught you a lesson for your next relationship and to help your your relationships moving forward to be more successful because you learn about yourself. So I just wanted to ask you, how do you think we can embrace life after a breakup? Well, I think very much in in that quote, you've you've summed it up there. Um, Adele was one of the stars of the film Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Really, really great film. Fantastic. And yeah, I just thought that was a really great summation of how we need to free ourselves, liberate ourselves from these very toxic narratives that 
of success and failure in relationships. Why is it a success if we stay together forever, if maybe we're not happy anymore? Surely it's a, (laughs) you know, more of a success if you're able to separate consciously and amicably and respectfully and behave compassionately and move on and maybe find new partners or for your relationship to transform into a really great friendship or a great co-parenting arrangement or, you know, some kind of family feeling that endures and continues. Yeah, and I like that you said the the thing about success, which was if, you know, is it a success if it's not working for you anymore? And I, there's something else in the book on the idea that the longer you've been with someone, the better you are at love. And how do we measure that? And how can that be true if it means that, you know, like where's the line between holding on to something for the sake of it and holding on to something to prove that you're better at love rather than doing what's right for you and what makes you both happy and, and fulfilled? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if staying together longer makes you better at love. <laughs> Did yeah. I say that? No. No, I think it was sort of just a, a, like talking around that idea, is that true, you know, or is it is it just something that we believe and it might be completely false? Yeah, I, th- I think it is probably false, although mm. I guess there's a happy medium. I mean, at some point mm-hmm. you've got to compromise and you mm. have to give in on some of the things that you – you know, maybe want to do or want need, you know, not very compatible or easy to live with, not very compatible with a long-term committed relationship. You know, maybe you want to stay up all night, you know, but your partner has to get out for work in the morning. You know, (laughs) there's all kinds of negotiations of boundaries around Mm -hmm. sort of domestic issues when you, particularly when you live together, if you have kids or pets or some kind of commitments together. So yeah, I don't know about that. I think you know, um, a few breakups are no bad thing in actually learning and reflecting and healing and growing. So yeah, I think we get better at love. The more we can practice love in all its forms and celebrate those equally, maybe platonic love. I mean, we talk about friendship breakups in the book as well as, as romantic ones. So if we can think about love just in a, in a broader sense too, you know, respecting other people, our neighbours, you know, our community, yeah. our our friends and family, you know, all all of these different people. So perhaps mm-hmm. perhaps we get better at love if if we practice these different types as well. This is sort of related to something else as well. I got so much from this book, honestly. I've I've got so many questions to ask you because it was just so brilliant but Mm. there was a lot of good um metaphors in there so one of them was about the relationship staircase versus the relationship escalator so are you choosing to climb the staircase and putting the work in or is your relationship something that's just propelling you forward without having to do anything like in um you know most straight monogamous relationships it feels as though people just do those milestones because it's the done thing but is it something that you know are we thinking enough about what we actually want from a relationship or are we just there for the ride you know rather than actually engaging and and putting in the work Yeah, well, the relationship escalator is part of this sort of new language around love and relationships that I came across. Well, actually, I came across that term when I was writing my first book, Is Monogamy Dead? And that really is this, um, 
you know, journey that we're on that, that we feel we have no control over, where we feel a relationship is supposed to follow this narrative, where we move f- through these stages very rapidly from meeting, dating, um, you know, becoming more serious, getting engaged, getting married, having children, living together, and all these stages that we must sort of follow through in order to have a successful relationship. And, you know, when you reach the top of the escalator, you've somehow made it and then you probably die. <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) isn't that great? Brilliant. (laughs) Um, Whereas um, one of the people I interviewed for that chapter about the language around love was a comedian friend of mine, Kate Smurthwaite, who said, you know, I'd prefer a relationship staircase that I could just choose to climb or not climb or descend or, you know, stay in the same place at, at my own pace. And however, I want to want to decide to do that. So Yeah, it's really interesting how societal gravitational pulls do force us to travel in in particular directions, which may not suit us in our individual relationship journeys and narratives. Yeah, and speaking about monogamy, there's there's something else that you say in the book that is perhaps one marriage for life isn't realistic now that we're living longer than our ancestors. And I've thought about this a lot that, you know, if people were living to 35 and being Romeo and Juliet and having falling in love at 14 and then, you know, having kids and stuff so early on, like our lifespan is probably doubled to triple that. So is is one partner for life realistic or is it, you know, is it just like a, the, the, nor- the norm of what we do now? Because I was also reading this other book. What was it? It was something I was reading recently which said that, Monogamy wasn't really brought in until the working class didn't have any time to have more than one relationship and they had to focus on making money. So probably only like 200 years ago and they were happy to have, you know, side hoes or like paramours or whatever it might be on the side. But then, yeah, when when people needed to, like the industrial revolution happened and people needed to go out and start making money, they sort of chose to put all that energy into one person because, it was all they had time to do. So they would get sex, love and family all from the one person, which wasn't always the done thing. But anyway, I've gone on a bit of a tangent there, but I found it really fascinating. Yeah, but yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you're right that um, non-monogamy has long been the preserve of of men and the sort of mm. upper classes and anyone in a, in a sort of situation of, of privilege. And yeah, anyone who's sort of got less agency or choices available to them, like, you know, in... Uh, decades gone by women maybe financially were less independent so they couldn't Mm. necessarily just leave so they might not risk having an affair Mm -hmm. whereas men did feel that they had sort of somehow more cultural permission to do so but Mm. yeah I think um, now we are it's kind of weird isn't it because in some ways we're more open but in many ways we're we're much more judgmental um, about non-monogamy and it's almost kind of even things up so now you know instead of men having this kind of freedom that they might have had we're sort of just now judgmental of everybody (laughs) you know who who cheats and has affairs and we use that language of cheating Um, you know whereas I think if we could talk about non-monogamy in a in a really sophisticated, nuanced way, it, we might find that for many people, maybe that's something that works really well and actually can be done in a really... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You really ethical way. Mm. And I wonder if we're more judgmental because everything is out there on display for everyone else to see. So with social media and even before social media when, you know, there was tabloid newspapers and we're watching the royals do everything and, you know, everything's sort of under a microscope and we're comparing it to others all the time. Do you think that it's to do with that, the reason we're more judgmental or do you think humans are just naturally curious and we're we're always going to be like that? Yeah, I think human beings are always comparing themselves with other human beings. And particularly, like you say, when we've got so much um, information visible to us and coming at us from every angle about what people are doing and getting up to, I think we're all a bit insecure about our sex lives. So (laughs) to some extent, I think some of the judgment comes from a feeling of insecurity that we're not having as much fun. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. No, I, I t- that is so interesting because I think, yeah, you're right. It's usually, it's like what your mom says in school. If someone's picking on you, it's because they're jealous of you, you know? And another really fascinating metaphor that you used in the book was butterflies versus moths. And I was hoping you could chat us through what this sort of, what you were alluding to in this part. <laughs> yeah, well, there was one of my podcast episodes where we spoke about what the inverse of the kind of butterflies of love would be, like the butterflies you get in your tummy when you first meet someone and yeah. it's all fluttery and amazing. And we were thinking about the the feeling you get in your tummy when you know things are starting to go wrong and something's not right. Maybe you're being gaslit, maybe 
you know, you're just maybe thinking that they are flirting with somebody else or cheating or there's something going on or there's some lack of communication, there's some lack of honesty. And and so the, the anxiety that sits in your tummy, we're trying to think of a, a word for that. And um, one of my podcast guests, Marion, uh, said, oh, it's like the moths of doom. And so <laughs> I decided to keep that idea in the book. And I talked about the moths of doom fluttering around every time you feel this anxiety about a relationship not being quite what it should be and your partner isn't being honest about that Mm. yeah that's really fascinating and it's it is like an anxiety I think because it's that horrible feeling in your stomach when something is not quite right and you don't know what it is and I've definitely had that before you know you see it in in a look between people or you know a side eye or something when other people around you are also picking up the vibes that it's not quite right. So I thought that was such a a great way to put it. And as well in the book, you talk about friendship and friendship breakups and the concept that if we can have, you know, infinite friends and we can have as many friends as we want and only one partner, if we're choosing to be monogamous, is a friendship breakup worse than uh, another breakup because it's almost as though someone is actively choosing to remove you from their life when they can have as many friends as they want. So it's someone, like the hurt and the pain of, and rejection of being told that someone doesn't want to be your friend anymore is so bad because it means that they actively don't want you in their life. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think yeah. it's more of a personal rejection because they're saying, oh, no, you know, there's, there's something that is toxic about this person or something that is just not not something I can deal with or just something that's wrong. Um, whereas to some extent we can feel comforted when a romantic partner rejects us because we're just not the one for them. They're not yeah. um, physically attracted to us or they're not – you know, romantically attracted to us or something because they have a particular type. And I don't know, maybe they like people with ginger hair and you've got brown hair. Do you know what I mean? So you can kind of rationalize it in a slightly different way, even though it is, of course, still painful. But if somebody who, you know, who has loads of friends then cuts you off, you're like, oh my God, what did I do? Yeah, and the yeah the fact that they can be friends with anyone and could have just let let it slip away rather than making a conscious decision to cut ties that is so savage. <laughs> <laughs> and on the on the flip side, um, there's a really interesting part about love affair friendships, and I've definitely experienced this when you meet someone and you just hit it off straight away. You have the exact same sense of humor. And I was thinking about this in Australia. I'm hoping she's listening, but her name's Chelsea. Um, we just we somehow followed each other on Instagram all through the pandemic. We ended up just sending each other lots of memes, and like we have the exact same sense of humor. And then we we ended up going for brunch when I was back in Melbourne because she doesn't live in London. And now we're just like really good friends and we're, we're real life friends. And it, it's just so, such an awesome thing, like a close platonic bond between women. And yeah, you say in the book that these bonds can be stronger and longer lasting and sometimes more impactful and important than than a romantic relationship. Well, again, this was something I first started thinking about in, in my first mm. book and how our definitions and boundaries around relationships are muddy and how to some extent it's been 
more challenging, in my mm. opinion, to be a lesbian woman having yeah. relationships and friendships with other women. I mean, I do have some friendships and have indeed have some had some sexual and romantic relationships and friendships with men too. Um, but largely my really key primary really intense, significant relationships have all been with other women. And so that makes life complicated. If you're in a romantic relationship with a woman, sometimes it's quite difficult to have a really significant friendship with another woman that you might meet up with for coffee, you know, and sort of for dates in inverted commas, um, and have that sort of romantic friendship, because perhaps that might seem a threat to your primary partnership in a way that it might not to a heteronormative partnership between mm. a man and a woman, because straight women have girlfriends, in inverted commas, girlfriends, mm -hmm. um, you know, that they really share their most intimate secrets with, stay up all night talking with, say I love mm. you to, are there for each other, rally round if somebody has a breakup or a catastrophe. And I think it's it's quite different. And sometimes I find myself being a little bit envious of straight women's friendships because I think mm -hmm. it's much easier for them to talk about love and say mm. I love you in a friendship and for that not to be sort of muddy. Yeah, that's so interesting. And do you think that um, – because I know you mentioned in the book that bisexual women have a, a relative position of privilege to lesbian women. Do you think that that would be easier or more difficult for them? Or I guess you can't really speak for them, but what would you say in regards to that? Well, I mean, it's really interesting because in this book – um, there's a chapter where I go and visit a sex lab and take part in this experiment yes. where I'm shown erotica. And some people have read that chapter as me coming out as a bisexual woman because mm -hmm. I do openly admit in, in that chapter just being aroused by, by men and seeing mm -hmm. naked men as well. And, and I have had sex with men. I have had relationships with men and I'm open mm -hmm. about that. And I think I'm partly as a result of writing this book, coming to a slightly more fluid place about my own identity and whether, yeah. you know, in a sort of pure animal sexuality sense, mm -hmm. I, I am bisexual. That would be a more appropriate label for me. However, mm -hmm. there's our cultural and political identity and label as well, which I think is a different thing. And maybe we need to be able to separate those two things. And culturally, socially, and politically, I have lived my life up to this point as a lesbian woman. I've gone on demos, you know, protesting about the fact that I can get married to my partner and, you know, gone mm -hmm. on marches where we have felt endangered. You know, I've had friends be beaten up and I've um, had relationships that mm -hmm. had to be completely invisible and that, you know, my my partner's parents could could not find out about could not know about yeah. um i mean uh, one little joke i used to make about that was how she had once told her parents um, or she told me that her parents had enjoyed the film broke back mountain <laughs> she was <laughs> trying to make me feel better and i thought well that's not given a great positive sense <laughs> about about how queer relationships turn out and so i think there is our sort of you know, our queer identity versus a sort of more heteronormative mm. privileged identity, which is a separate thing maybe to, you know, our sexual orientations in a very sort of animal mm -hmm. sense. And and these two things are quite complex. And so in the book, I talk about having a brief fling with a woman who identifies as bisexual, yet her social 
political and cultural identity is very much a heteronormative identity of mm. a straight, cis, affluent woman who has had children, who has dated men and had all mm. of her significant long-term relationships with men and mm. who talks in a language that is making an assumption that her future relationships with will be with men. She posts on Instagram that she's looking for a boyfriend and, and so uses this kind mm -hmm. of language. So it can feel very erasing to be a woman that dates somebody like that and you can feel very disempowered by someone yeah. using that kind of language. And I wanted to share that experience because I think it's it's very complex. And, um, you know, there is often a tension between lesbian women and bisexual women because of this power, power dynamic. Um, and I, you know, I'm so, so celebratory of my wonderful bisexual female friends who absolutely celebrate their relationships with women and talk about them very openly and who use a sort of more inclusive language and, and maybe are less specific about whether their future partners are going to be male or female or, well, a lot of people mm. are pansexual now and, and don't even use the word bisexual because we want to include trans and non-binary people too. So I do think um, we need to just be more conscious of how we how we think about our different positions of privilege in the world, particularly as women who, you know, we want to all stand up for one another and be in it together and lean in together mm -hmm. and support one another. Um, and let's try not to erase, you know, people who are perhaps in a less privileged position than us. Yeah, and you spoke there about the way that that certain person presented themselves politically and on social media, the, the way that they put their identity out there. And there's something else in the book that you speak about, which is the term political lesbians and the way that they they almost are queer baiting in the way that they behave. So I was hoping you could tell us more about that because I found it so interesting and I've never heard anyone articulate it so well. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because when I came out, it was at a time of um, identity politics and we didn't really have other identities outside of the binary of straight and gay. Um, so, you know, the, the lesbian and gay society was just that. Um, we didn't yet include bisexuals or trans people, even though we knew loads of amazing trans people who were part of our community. And, you know, we were starting to learn about pronouns. And actually, you know, we were starting to be really inclusive, but we just didn't yet have the language. And we didn't, you know, have the the sort of B and the Q and the I and the A and all these other letters in the sort of LGBTQIA+. Mm -hmm. Um but yeah, there was a trend at the time that some feminist heterosexual women would mm. identify as lesbians because politically they felt it was sort of more right on to sort of reject men and to have relationships with women. But for most of them, this was a temporary measure and they went on to get married to men. So to me, that felt confusing and felt mm -hmm. somewhat infuriating and... and <laughs> <laughs> challenging and difficult, um, you know, because I knew I was gay and I knew I was going to fall in love with women, but it felt rejecting in, in a strange way, even though, yes, of course, we want women to celebrate other women. But it, I think it ties into what is going on now, where we see many heteronormative people adopting slightly more fluid identities or saying they're not straight and kind of um, 
expecting that queerness is somehow now aspirational and sort of cool and a bit edgy and it makes you sort of less boring than just a sort of grey straight person. Whereas that totally does not take on board the absolute hell, to be honest, that Mm-hmm. Queer people, particularly of my generation and older, but also all the young queer people too. You know, we've been through a rough time. Um, <laughs> I was a teenager in the 1980s when my teachers could not talk about queerness in school. Mm-hmm. They would lose mm-hmm. their jobs um, or certainly yeah. be under threat of doing so. And it mm-hmm. was, you know, people were beaten up. Queer people have been beaten to death in, in major cities all over the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, this is serious stuff. And I do feel that some of these people are trivializing it. And I'm really, really happy to see sometimes, um, you know, heteronormative women really standing up for us lesbian women. Like um, Alrika Johnson actually recently has spoken out about how it, she's she's occasionally had flings with women, but she says, you know, I really hate it when um, my lesbian friends tell me that these women have sort of said to them, oh, I'm just dating women because I can't find a man. Like it's a sort of a secondary option or a lesser option. As though it, you can just step into it yeah. like it's a pair of jeans, yeah, you yeah. know, and then take it off at the end of the day. It take, yeah, exactly. And it's disposable mm. and it's yeah. not really respecting what a precious and amazing gift it is to have a relationship with another woman. It shouldn't be mm. presented as a secondary option that you somehow failed at finding a man. So you're going to cast your dating mm-hmm. net even wider. <laughs> and it's some mark of desperation that you're now dating dating queer women. Well, you know, mm. sorry, that's not, <laughs> that's not on. <laughs> yeah, it's not a secondary option. I suppose it's sort of akin to cultural appropriation when it comes to things like race as well, when people are, are using and appropriating different people's cultures but not acknowledging the struggles that come with being part of that minority group I guess it's it's quite similar to that it's absolutely similar to cultural approach appropriation I can't even say it but yes that's exactly what this is all about it is a failure to understand the nuances the intersections mm-hmm. of people's experiences that have brought them to a place of of queerness mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the privileged position relatively that they might have come to a more fluid identity from if you've lived to this point a very heteronormative life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just feel I feel it must be so frustrating to experience that, and I'm sorry that you know it is something that is is prevalent. It's just it it frustrates me, and I'm not even the lesbian. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> my final question is before we wrap up: is in the book you ask, is it more romantic to be with your childhood sweetheart? or to date 500 people and to have someone say that you're the best of the 500? Because I have been asking all of my friends this. When you (laughs) wrote that, I was like, I actually don't know. I feel like maybe it's the date 500 people and then being picked, like like winning The Bachelor, you know? Like you're the best one. (laughs) Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, well, this is a reflection of how dating culture has changed and how, you know, many decades ago, people dated within a very small geographical pool or social and cultural pool. Maybe, you know, there would be a a young gentleman of of a certain similar age who lived just Mm -hmm. down the road and, you know, your family knew his family. You'd just kind of get set up and you'd go, oh, well, you know, he seems to be the best option. I don't really know of any other options, so he'll do. And it was almost like arranged marriage in a sense and people would, you know, 
start to fall in love and um, get on and navigate a relationship in in the way that you you can. You know, I think we place too much emphasis on finding the one and somehow you know, knowing when we have met this magical, mystical person, sometimes our families and our friends are a much better judge of character of who we might get on with and form a sustainable relationship with than, you know, uh, we're we're sort of really distracted by by lust and <laughs> short-term yeah. desires. And I mean, lust is great, you know, but sometimes those people are just, you know, one night stand or someone suitable mm-hmm. for a fling for a few months. Um, we, we can get carried away and think, well, sex is great, so that must be the person I'm meant to live with forever. And then you realise you're <laughs> yeah. setting yourself up for a life of misery. <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, I, I do think that if you, um, you know, do what people do now and you weigh up a ton of options, you know, you're scrolling through on, on dating apps um, and thinking, you know, this person actually ticks all my boxes, then actually a much more selective filtering process has gone on. So yeah. I think there has been more sophisticated thought generally now mm-hmm. that has gone into people's mate choices. Thank you so much for jumping on, Rosie. It's been brilliant to chat to you. And, um, yeah, if people want to find you on social or order your book, where can they find you? Yes, um, I would love people to find me and say hello or even ask (laughs) some breakup questions or share your dilemmas with me. Yes. Um, I'm at Rosie Wilby on Twitter. I'm at Breakup Monologues on Instagram. Um, I'm also at Rosie Wilby Author on TikTok. Um, I'm on Facebook as well, LinkedIn. So you can find me in all the places. And the book is available from all good bookshops, um, Amazon, bookshop.org, etc., etc. You could ask your local indie to order it. And it's just come out in paperback. But it's also an audio book narrated by me available on Audible. Ah. So if people have enjoyed listening, then <laughs> maybe they'd like to uh, like to check that version out. Beautiful. Thank you so much. I hope you enjoyed my chat with the lovely Rosie. Please let me know on my Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, wherever. If you have any stories or thoughts of your own to share, love and elbow taps. Peace. Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.